This message by Thabiti Anyabwile, titled, Gathering to Hear, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the third general session at our Worship God 2011 conference. Thabiti serves as senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands. Well, it's a great joy to be with you guys tonight and to be with you at the conference again. Um, I, I, that, let me tell you, just so the fruit that you bear in my life, um, when, I, when I go back home to the Cayman Islands, there are a couple of people who like to observe me after I've been at Worship God. My administrative assistant, Meg Bodden, she likes to observe me singing because she's convinced that when I come back from here, I'm much more animated in my singing than otherwise. And my wife of 20 years, praise God for her. She tells me she likes to hear me preach here because I somehow have my hair down more when I'm here. And so you guys are bearing all kinds of fruit in my life, and it's a joy to be here. I do come this year, though, um, a little bit dull spiritually, just to confess that. I, I saw Ray last night and greeted him, and um, first question he asked me, and I love being asked this question, and it just shows his pastoral heart. He says, brother, how are you doing? He says, how's your soul? I said, thank you, Ray. I'm, I'm encouraged in so many ways, and yet I'm I'm fighting a dullness in my own in my own soul. I don't know if anybody else here comes this week to this conference with that kind of dullness or maybe distraction or maybe discouragement or or some other thing that is a malady that you are in some ways hoping the Lord to remedy by his spirit and by his word, perhaps igniting something in this conference. And perhaps you're like young Timothy. I'm going to consider Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, particularly some verses in chapter 4. Perhaps you like young Timothy a little bit. Paul has written this letter to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 3 tells us. And Paul has left him there in Ephesus so that he may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. He's left Timothy in Ephesus to contend for the faith. And he's writing this epistle to his young understudy to to guide Timothy in his responsibilities in shepherding the church. And one wonders what, what prompted this letter from the Apostle Paul. If you allow me just a little bit of sanctified imagination. I imagine Timothy walking through the streets of Ephesus. His head hung low. His eyes making a study of the dust and avoiding any eye contact. He makes his way through the crowded market and finds a a side street to perhaps go to his home. And he, he hurries, he goes into the home, he never raises his head, closes the door behind him. He sits down to write the Apostle Paul, his great mentor and father in the faith. And this is what I imagine Timothy wrote. Timothy, your dear son in the faith, to Paul. I've thought to write you several times, but I've just not had the heart to do it. I didn't know how to put into words 
what I've been feeling. But I have to face the reality. I'm not cut out for this. I'm not pastor material. I don't think I have the gifts necessary for this work, at least not as the main pastor. On a team, I'm fine, but I don't think the Lord is with me in this. Things are a mess here in Ephesus. Several men in the church, especially Hymenaeus and Alexander, are insisting that we teach people the law. I'm not sure they're very clear in what they're saying, but they they love to talk about the genealogies and and sometimes they they even use myths as a way of teaching. No matter how I try to encourage and influence them, I'm not having much success. Along with the false teachers, some some people are leaving the faith altogether. Breaks my heart. Some of the people we've spent the most time with have started... Well, living just as if they were not parts of the church at all. I've got my hands full with the women of the church. Some are quite immodest in dress. But how do I tell them to change their dress? Other women, they they want to run the church. They say that if a man can lead, they can too. And, And I don't know why, but we seem to have a lot of widows in the church right now. Women all alone. With great need. We've tried to take care of them all, but there's there's grumbling about some of the younger ones starting troubles and chasing after men. I, I'm trying to lead in all this, but the older members of the church say, say I'm I'm so young. They, they may be right. The, the, the wealthy members say they should be in charge because they know how to get things done. No one seems to pay much attention to the elders, much less me. To top it all off, my stomach is in knots. Just the thought of gathering with the people leaves me in cold sweats. I've been running a fever for some time, constant headaches. I'm just playing tired. I guess I'm writing to say, I I can't do this. I'm messing everything up, and it's just plain killing me. With all the love that Christ gives me, Timothy. I imagine that something like that may have landed in the hands of the Apostle Paul. We don't know what prompted Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, but it reads as if he were addressing a very bewildered and beleaguered young pastor trying to figure it all out. Paul writes and says, as a sort of overview of this letter, Timothy, stop trying to influence these false teachers. Command them not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to endless myths and genealogies. Listen, Timothy, get everyone to pray. I want men to stop arguing and to lift up holy hands in prayer. As for those turning away from the faith, you, you can't be surprised by this as, as much as it breaks the heart. The Spirit clearly says that in later times this would happen. Re- remember that this is spiritual warfare and demons are masquerading as angels of light. I've handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And you must lead all the people of the church. 
Tell the women to dress modestly, like women professing faith. And, and tell the young widows to, to keep their faith and to marry again and to be chaste keepers of home. And also tell the women that they must not leave the church, but that God has designed since Adam that they should know the blessing of godly men as leaders. Now, Timothy, make sure it's qualified men, men who are godly in character. And you be sure to fulfill your ministry, trained to be godly, preach the word, shepherd the people. As for your fellow elders, honor them, protect them, rebuke them if necessary, and tell the rich not to trust in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God and to be generous toward all men in wealth and good deeds. In the midst of this letter, this this address to young, timid Timothy, Paul focused Timothy on his responsibility as a pastor and a shepherd and a leader of God's people in worship of God. Paul gives Timothy something of a three-legged stool for pastoral ministry. The first leg there is in chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. We might call that leg private ministry. It's the way Timothy is to pursue and to train himself in godliness. The third leg is really there in chapter 5. We might call that personal ministry. It's the way Timothy is to shepherd and to care for the various kinds of persons in the congregation. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, widows, elders, and so on. But nestled in the middle, where we wish to spend our time tonight, is Paul's address to Timothy and his responsibility regarding his public ministry. Regarding what he is to focus on in the public gathering of God's people. If you're a young, timid pastor facing challenge and facing trouble, I pray these six verses are an encouragement to you. Because in them, in a nutshell, what Paul says is, Timothy, in your public ministry, give yourself to the ministry of the Word. Gather around the Word. Make sure the Word animates your ministry. Make sure the Word is the foundation that you're building upon. Make sure the vision of God for His church expressed in His Word is what you're aspiring to. If you do one thing and all else fails... Gather and build around the word. And so I pray that as we leave tonight, we might leave with an increased awareness of the centrality of the scripture in the gathering of God's people. First Timothy chapter four, verses 11 to 16. This is God's word. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. 
For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Can we pray together? Lord, as we heard this morning, we are a people of unclean lips. And apart, O Lord, from your cleansing atonement, apart, O Lord, from the transfer of your holiness, we could not approach you or sing in your presence or preach your word. Without the gift of your spirit, Lord, there would be no illumination. There would be no profit from the exposition of your scripture. Lord, in other words, we are a desperate people. We're desperate to hear from you. For your spirit to open us up, minister to us, and show us precious things, great things, things too wonderful to utter. And by your grace to change us, O Lord, by degree, to the likeness and glory of Christ your Son. So Lord, speak to us. Your desperate servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonathan Lehman has written what I think is perhaps the, the single best volume, readable, clear, instructive, on what it means to have a church that is centered on the Word of God. It's a book called Reverberation. And in it, Jonathan uses an analogy that I think is quite helpful that I want to share for you as a, as a word picture of, of what it means for the, for the church to be centered on the Word of God. And I want you to hold that analogy in mind as we work through these six verses because in various ways, these six verses, I think, are telling us what Jonathan is picturing for us in this analogy. This is what he writes in Reverberation. God's Word gives life to a church like electricity gives power to a city. Picture it. Electricity leaves the power plant and buzzes through power lines. Then it makes its way into street lights, grocery store freezers, office computers, and rows and rows of neighborhood homes. Lamps glow and refrigerators hum. In the same way, I'm contending that God's Word buzzes and hums through people and the local church, giving light to their eyes and hope to their hearts. And so the key question for us is this. Does God's Word buzz and hum through our public services as a power plant generating the power of God's Word and into the hearts and into the hopes of God's people. Paul's letter here to Timothy shows us how it might happen. The first thing we observe is this, is that the Word of God must be the substance of our private counsel. We see that there in verse 11. Paul says, command and teach these things. Now, I think he's referring here to private counsel because if you look down in verse 13, he says pretty clearly there, until I come, devote yourself to the what? Public reading and preaching and teaching of the word. And so I think he has in mind here the, the sort of concourse, the conversation that, that goes on between Christians, not just when the pulpit is speaking, but as you're sitting in the pews and after the service and before the service and in your small groups. 
The word should hum and buzz even in those smaller collections of, of God's people. That these things here refers most immediately to verses 7 to 10, where Paul there is speaking of the gospel and speaking of the mystery of, of godliness, that, that Timothy is to give himself to these things, to command and to teach these things. But it, but it speaks more generally of, of really the whole counsel of God. That, that the man who, who opens the book and declares its content is called and responsible to declare and to apportion all of God's counsel to his people. These things, then, is what Timothy is to command and teach. Notice there, both of those things, command and teach. Teaching involves instruction, explanation, coming alongside others and aiding them in their understanding to grasp what God has spoken to his people, to abide by it. Notice also Timothy is to command. The word command there is carrying this strong note of, of authority. To command something is to insist upon it. To, to command something is, is to issue an order. We might, we might think of the military with its officers and subordinates obeying the commands of their superiors. Or better yet, we might think of an almighty God giving commands to his creation. See, beneath verse 11 is a particular theology of the word. That in the word... A king speaks. And when we, when we tell people what the king speaks, we don't, we don't do it whimpering and shy and, and apologetic. I'm, 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 I'm sorry to tell you that the king of the universe, well, he kind of, well, this would be unpleasant, but he has an expectation. I, I don't know how to tell you this. No. When the crier leaves the courts, he goes into the market, And he says, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, the king has said. I love the way Warren Wisby describes Harry Ironside. He says, when he went into the pulpit, he didn't take question marks, but exclamation points. (laughs) Timothy is to command what what God has said. and And the particular theological understanding beneath this is not just that God speaks in his word, but the word now carries the authority of God. Just reading these six verses... We realize that the sovereign king of all creation has just spoken to us authoritatively. In our anti-authority age, we're, we're kind of uncomfortable with commands, aren't we? We don't like to think of people having this kind of authority over us. Any, any kind of authority we're tempted to think is, is abusive and by definition tyrannical. But in joining command and teach in verse 11, Paul's doing nothing more than what Jesus did in the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to obey what? Everything I have commanded. You realize there's no way to make disciples unless we deliver the commands of God. Unless we deliver what the king has said. 
And, and, and Timothy, this bewildered pastor, this young, timid pastor with older folks challenging me and rich folks wanting to run things and women going amok, he's now being instructed, command. And not because of his own position. It's not his authority out of which he commands. It's the authority of God invested in the word of God. I, again, I love the way Mark Lauterbach talks about this. He says an elder with a, without a Bible or with a closed Bible is an elder with no authority. But when we open this book, great shafts of light and glory beam out because the king of heaven speaks in it and speaks to his people. Timothy is to command and to teach. And command there is listed first. It receives the place of emphasis. Can I ask you a question? Do you remember when the Lord God first commanded you? Do you remember when you first heard his command? Do you know what the most effective or the first effective command in your life and my life was? It's when God spoke to us and said, come forth, rise, live. I remember that day. I walked into a church in Washington, D.C. with 8,000 people in it. And I sat about 12 rows from the front, right in front of the middle, in, in, in the middle of the pulpit. And I had walked in that day sleeping the cold sleep of sin's death. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses, no interest in God. And the preacher opened Exodus 32 and he began to expound idolatry and sin and wickedness. And, and he began to preach Christ from Exodus 32 as the one who brings true worship to God and the one who has obeyed God's commands and the one who has sacrificed himself to fulfill all righteousness and the one who rose again from the grave and he called sinners to repent and believe and it was though God said, rise! That's the first command, Christian, that you heard and obeyed. The Spirit of the Lord made the gospel effective in your life and implanted in you what you did not have, life. And you (gasps) breathe for the first time as a twice-born being. And you know what you sang? You said, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the embrace of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. God made you alive by the command of the gospel to repent and believe and live. And Timothy and we ought never be shy of focusing on this one thing, the proclamation and the spread of God's word, teaching it with all authority, commanding and teaching it because the word of God is life. You realize we have to preach this book as though we really believe what Jesus said when he said we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our gatherings ought to look like that. 
Like we believe that. Like we entered the room starving and hungry, living not by bread, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. As an aside, I want to ask a question. This is a a gathering of worship leaders, pastors, so on, responsible for the music and singing. Is anybody aware of any music that exalts and celebrates the commands of God? Not as though we are law keepers, but, but exalts and delights in the fact that God, who is king, has issued his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. When's the last time you've heard someone sing and rejoice in, Thou shalt not commit adultery? <laughs> now think about this. If any of our people are listening any length of all to secular radio stations, they have listened to a lot of people say, Adultery is wonderful. Adultery is great. Me and Mrs. Jones. (laughs) Mrs. Jones was not his wife. They had a thing going on. (laughs) Perhaps it's difficult for many pastors to preach, for example, about God's teaching on divorce. Because we have no songs celebrating thou shalt not commit adultery. Or God's teaching on adultery. It's difficult for people to preach because, you know, we, we've not been singing that truth. And our hearts have not been glad in God's commands. And we've not been singing of God's commands as a way now to get to Christ, who is the one who has satisfied the commands for us. So perhaps Enfield or Sojourner, someone will do a project on the commands. I can't sing, but I can recommend. (laughs) So he tells Timothy here that his private counsel, verse 11, is to be centered on the word of God, which bears the authority of God. Now notice what he tells him in verse 12, that, that the word of God is to be the measure of his person. Verse 12 here, notice. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Sometimes people get the impression that, that a, 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 a gathering centered on the word means simply that the sermon takes up the bulk of our time together. Or, or that the sermons and Bible studies are, are the only way of learning. To be sure, now I'm a preacher and I get my paycheck from preaching, so let me get a, a self-interested plug here. To be sure, the first place must be assigned in our public gatherings to the, to the proclamation and teaching of God's word. But if the rest of the gathering seems to celebrate or honor something other than God's word, then what we build with one hand, we tear down with the other. Our example teaches. Our person teaches. Everything up front teaches. And so Paul here is right now to direct Timothy to his example. His example in speech and life and love in faith and in purity. His example is to be a a whole example of, of growing holiness in conformity to God's word. And that's how Timothy, this young timid pastor, take note of this, is to meet the opposition he faces in the church. 
I look out in the room and there are lots of, there are lots of us who are young. And, and us, I'm us who are young. Huh? <laughs> Don't let the gray hair fool you. And you know the temptation to young leaders in the church when they face opposition? There, there are few. One is to throw their weight around and grasp for authority and try and wield authority. If you read verse 11 without verse 12, you might think that Paul is encouraging a strong-fisted kind of leadership of the church. But the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. He says in the qualification for elders back in chapter 3, verse 3, that an elder must be gentle, not violent, not quarrelsome. Or if we're young and we're in the leadership of the church and we find some who are opposing us, perhaps you're trying to lead the church in a particular direction in its, in its singing and worship and its corporate gathering. And the older persons are resistant to that. You know, it's a temptation to go, you know what? We'll leave them behind. We'll just go on and, and blow past them. We won't shepherd them to the, to this vision and truth. Or there's the temptation to just, to just quit. I throw my hands up. I'm done. I mean, have you, have you heard the kinds of phrases and sayings that indicate that youth is being despised in a local church? Maybe you've heard things like, boy, I'm old enough to be your mama. Well, I used to change your diapers. I taught your brother in Sunday school. Just wait till you get to be my age then. I was here long before you, indicating they're going to be here long after me. (laughs) Just statistically, you know that. (laughs) Or that sort of omnibus dismissive statement toward young people. These young people today, all small ways of despising youth, all temptations for us as young people to respond in a different way. I mean, as, as, as young pastors, have you, have you ever heard these kinds of things? And it makes you want to yell and pull out your hair if you, if you have any. And I say, get with it, people. Move into this century. Now, you see, that feeling right there, As a priest of God, leading a kingdom of priests and worshiping God in spirit and truth, that's not from God. It's from the flesh. It's from our sinful nature. But that can't be our spirit. That can't be the way we respond. We have to be the responding like those who are being sanctified by God's word, which is what I take verse 12 to be indicating when Paul says, set an example for the believers. This is someone who's up front and has been maturing by the exercise of God's word and now is in some degree conforming to the likeness of Christ and is able then to be set up front as an example for others to pattern their lives after. We have to respond the way Herbert Palmer responded. Not many of us will be familiar with the name Herbert Palmer, perhaps. In 1626, at the age of 25, Palmer was invited to speak at a French-speaking church in Canterbury, England. 
He was not only young at 25, he was also very short. He was fresh out of Cambridge University, and he goes there to take up this, this invitation, and he is walking up the pulpit, up the steps to the pulpit. And the story is told that as he's taking the steps to the pulpit, a rather rotund woman in the back says out loud, Alas, they've sent us a boy to preach to us. What will he tell us? Welcome to Canterbury. Palmer takes the pulpit and he prays and he prays and he prays and then he preaches and he preaches. And he preaches. And heaven came to that congregation. And as he stepped down the stairs, it's told that that woman could be heard saying, Praise God, they sent us such a godly man. Here's the moral. Phil Riken says it best. The way to stop people from looking down on you is to make sure they're looking up to you. And the way to do that is to lead by example. Richard Baxter's words are piercing here too. He says, there are too many men who are ministers before they know how to be Christians. The example the minister sets before the people is nothing more than the example of the word sanctifying God's people. That example is simply the outworking of God's word in the life of the one who's up front, whether they're a worship leader, whether they're a pastor, or what have you. For did not our Savior pray in his high priestly prayer in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice, not your word is true. Your word is truth itself. And as the truth of God's word works its way through through the people of God, it, it sanctifies them. Sets them apart. And among those who are leading, it begins to work this example that silences the opposition. So Paul writes to another pastor, Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And Paul says there, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. A good example has a way of silencing critics. Far better than clever argument. And so, brothers and sisters, our, our lives are to be such that, that people like, like, like fourth graders or, or four-year-olds can, can lay their hand on the page and, and trace, the, trace their lives over hours and remove the hand and, and see there the imprint of Christ. This is what we're called to do. Young men desiring to be leaders and pastors learn to live an exemplary life before God's people. That will be the other way the word works among the people of God, by your example. And older members here, learn to receive gifted young people as a blessing from the Lord. Do not despise their youth. Do not despise their gifts. Make room. Pray for them. Hold them up. Encourage them. That the work of the gospel might be passed, that baton might be passed effectively to those who run behind you. Everything up front teaches. 
And so we have to ask ourselves in terms of our example, perhaps a hard question. Is our example teaching a hipster, trendy, and ultimately shallow Christianity? Or an example of rock-solid, word-rich Christian discipleship? Are we exalting youthfulness? Or are we exalting holiness? Paul says, set the believers an example in everything. Look thirdly at how he instructs Timothy. Verse 13, he instructs Timothy to saturate then the public meeting with the word of God. So he writes there in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Three things, public reading of the scripture, public preaching, and public teaching. That's, that's the sort of mix that Timothy is to, to give himself to, to devote himself to. It's a mix that, divine, that defines many things. It, it defines a, a service, a, a gathering that's organized with the word at its center. Those three things of reading, exhortation, teaching, that's a pretty good definition of, of expositional preaching. It's to read the text, explain the text, apply the text. Very simple. Uh, the word here is to be central because it gives it gives life. And whenever God's people have recovered God's word and God's word has then been placed at the center of their gathered life, you know what's happened? Revival has happened. Consider 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23 when young Josiah at eight years of age becomes king of Israel and they rediscover the scroll and begin to, to read the scroll. The entire nation rents its heart in repentance and revival and covenant renewal is breathed into Israel by the word of God. Or consider Nehemiah chapter 8 when Israel is coming now back to the rubble of Jerusalem which had been ransacked and left desolate. And they have this arduous task of rebuilding the nation. And Nehemiah reads the word of God from morning to noonday. And the priests explain the word of God. And under the reading and the recovery and the explanation of the word of God, the people are cut to their hearts and they mourn their sin and they repent. They come into contact with the majesty of God seen in his word. So much so that the priest didn't say, be happy and point them to God's grace. And the people are revived. By the recovery of God's word. If we want life in our people and life in our gathering, the word must be central to all we do. This sort of demonstrates to us the sufficiency of God's word too, doesn't it? God's word is enough to produce the life that we want to have with our king. Notice there, he says, devote yourself to three things. Public reading of scripture, which seems to have all but vanished in Christian services, to teaching and to preaching or exhortation, as the ESV puts it. Now, if you're tracking with this as a worship guy, perhaps you're thinking that singing is conspicuously absent in verse 13 and all of 1 Timothy. 
You may be thinking, Where, where's the singing, Paul? Where's the, where's the music? What's, what's my part in this? You may be t- tempted to think that you have no appreciable role when it comes to the centrality of the word in the public gathering of the church. So this seems to be a good place to remind us of the relationship between the music and singing of the gathered people of God and the public proclamation and reading of God's word to instruct and encourage and build up the people of God. How do those two things relate? How does the singing relate to the the ministry of the word? Well, first, I think there are three inadequate answers to that question. And one inadequate answer would be that that singing should not compete with the ministry of the word. That's true as far as it goes, but it's inadequate. Uh, Another answer might be that that singing should enhance the ministry of the word. That's true too, but it's inadequate. The third thing we might say is that singing should be balanced with the word. Depending on what you mean by that, that may be either false or inadequate. I'm reminded of Ray Ortland's brief exhortation last night. I don't know if you remember this, where he said, almost in passing, this crucial sentence, it's critical for the worship guy to be on the same page with the preaching guy. That the singing and the pulpit make the same sound, enjoy the same philosophy. Did you hear that? Well, how do we do that? Know that one of the great biblical roles for singing is expressed in Colossians 3.16. If you want, you can turn there and see what Paul says there. Because when Paul addresses singing there, he doesn't say the singing should not compete with the word. He doesn't say the singing should be balanced with the word. And he he doesn't say that the singing should enhance the word. But what he tells us in Colossians 3.16 is that proper biblical singing is spreading the word. Notice what he says here in Colossians 3.16, these well-known words. He says, let the word of Christ, there's the word, the gospel, the announcement, the truth, the teaching of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as two things. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Notice the second thing. As you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. I want to encourage you to recognize that the great opportunity you have as those who are leading in the public praise of God is not simply to try sort of connect with people emotionally or, or certainly, I know no one in this room would imbibe this idea, but, but certainly not to do a, a good performance before an almighty God. That, that's, that's not what you're doing. We're not playing at praise. But, but the great opportunity you have as a servant of God in this particular role is to actually so construe the, the, the work of singing that what you're doing in the singing is spreading the word of God until it dwells richly in God's people. Singing should be spreading the word. When we get that in first place, then we can talk about balancing and enhancing and not competing. Singing is to spread the word. I, I love what Enfield did tonight. We'd sing great truth. And before we'd sing that truth, do you, did you count how many passages of scripture they read for us? 
How often they helped us enter into the singing by reminding us of what the singing was pointing to, the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. And that has a great benefit because when we're done with the singing, guess where we're anchored? Not in the singing, but in the Scripture. I mean, this has massive implications for the the public praise and the role of public praise in our gatherings. I'll, I'll give you two. They're obvious, but worth stating. Uh, This means, this has implications for what we sing. That the content of our singing needs to be meditation on the scripture by and large. On on the truth of the scripture. That what we're doing in our singing isn't so much, it isn't the posture of our singing. It's fine to do this. I'm not knocking this. Don't get me wrong. But the posture of our singing isn't primarily... Eyes up, hands outstretched, singing, having sort of a, a, a sort of private party in the midst of 1,500 people. The posture of our singing, since we are teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the posture of our singing primarily is a cupped hand joining our mouths with the ears around us. We're teaching. We're speaking. We're instructing. We're informing. So that the word of God dwells richly in the people of God. We sing the what of the Bible. And of course there's the implications for the how we sing as well. We have to sing with understanding. Again, this is why I appreciate how we were led so well this morning and last night, how we were led so well tonight, because all along the way, the leaders were ushering us along in understanding, explaining why we were singing, what we were singing, directing us to the truth that was embedded in the singing, linking that truth to the scripture from which it came. And all along, we're, we're growing in our understanding. I had a wonderful moment this morning as we were singing. I don't know the name of the song, but I I knew what we were singing. As we were singing, really, words associated with 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10, where Paul is praying about the removal of the thorn in his flesh, and God speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient for you. And we were meditating on, on God's mercy and, and God's grace in the, in the midst of our suffering. And, and God says to Paul, or Paul proclaims in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. And we were just rehearsing that and rehearsing that. And the scripture was coming flooding into our hearts. And again, reading Revelation, anticipating that final song, and then singing that chorus pushing us deeper, or rather pushing the word of Christ deeper into our hearts. It's how we're to sing and, and what we're to sing. And friend, you're here at a worship conference and you play that role in your church. That, that is a joyful privilege. You have the ministry of seeing God's word dwell richly in the people. Your ministry is a teaching ministry. You're involved in the ministry of the word. And what you do in singing and the example you set, it centers people on God's word. Enjoy that. Rejoice in that. Delight in that. We should move on. The fourth thing that Paul says here is in verse 14. He tells Timothy that the word of God should, as it were, prescribe the use of God's gifts. The word of God in the public assembly has some bearing on how we use our gifts as well. Verse 14, do not neglect your gift, 
which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. We don't know exactly why, but Timothy has shied away from his gifts. He's, He's buried his gifts somewhere. The first 14 looks back to Timothy's ordination. And a remarkable thing happened when Timothy entered into the ministry. The Lord sent the prophecy, a prophetic word. Someone spoke a prophetic word. We don't know the contents, but a prophetic word over Timothy. And it has something to do with, I think, Timothy's public gift of preaching. And and Paul is saying to him, Timothy, remember that word. Remember that gift. Two supernatural things, a divine revelation from God and a dispensation of a spiritual gift. Stir it up, Timothy. Do not be weak. Do not be timid. Give yourself to the use of that gift. So even the use of our gifts in the public assembly are to be circumscribed and built upon the infallible word of God. And so God inspires the Apostle Paul to write those pivotal chapters in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14 to instruct us in the proper use of of spiritual gifts in the assembly. Consider that. We have divinely inspired word to govern and substantiate the use of divine gifts. The centrality of the word of God in the public service means the word of God is informing and limiting and sustaining the use of gifts in the public assembly. And so our our assemblies are to be ordered and regulated by God's word. And Timothy here, filled with the Holy Spirit, is to use this gift. Press on with me to verse 15. Because the word is now, we see in verse 15, a standard for our progress in the faith. So the word is, if you go back to verse 11, it is, it is the source of what we privately counsel. In verse 12, the word is, 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 is sort of what informs our personal example. In verse 13, the word is what gives us, what we declare in our public proclamation. In verse 14, the word here, it, it powers and circumscribes the use of our gifts. And in verse 15, it is the word then that becomes the standard for our progress in the faith. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I love those two P words in verse 15. Practice and progress. Practice and progress. I love those words not because I'm an incremental perfectionist. I love those words because they drip with grace. I love those words because they remind me that when I take the pulpit, I'm not perfected. When I strap on the guitar, I'm not perfected. When I come to lead in prayer, I'm not yet perfected. The glory of God is this, that He has chosen to use broken vessels. And in the very act of our our public administrations, God is also perfecting us and readying us for a perfect praise and glory and in heaven. So Timothy here is to devote himself to the word, to be diligent in these matters, to, to give himself wholly to them so that his progress may be seen, not his perfection. This is liberating. This is liberating. Because I don't know if you have any role publicly in your church. But if you do, 
At some point, you're going to do something stupid. <laughs> you're going to say the wrong thing. Somebody's going to be offended. You're going to play in the wrong key. Your voice is going to crack. At some point, something's going to happen, and in that moment, it's going to be the revelation of your imperfection. For everybody to see. And Paul says here in verse 15, that's okay, keep working at it. <laughs> Lean into God's grace. You, you, know what, you know what tells us whether or not we understand grace or not? It's, it's, it's how we respond to God when we don't feel clean or worthy. You know, when you feel dirty, broken in your sin perhaps, or, or you feel your heart's cold, or, 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 or you just dull spiritually, or, or you, you really have done that stupid thing, you've offended that brother and, and you haven't reconciled with him, or they've offended you and you haven't forgiven. The, the test as to whether or not we understand grace is what we do with that. Whether or not we sort of wait until we feel better about ourselves and then try to approach God. Or whether in all of our brokenness and dirty and imperfection, we go to God just like that. Or is when we go to God like that, full of the awareness of our imperfection, knowing that we have been accepted in the Beloved, knowing that it's not our perfection that we proclaim before Him, but it's Christ's perfection that we treasure. When we can quote 1 Corinthians 1.30, that, that Christ has become our wisdom, that is our, our righteousness, holiness, redemption, and sanctification. When we can cling to Christ as all the holiness we will ever need to see an infinitely holy God, then we have understood grace. This is what... This is what I hope Timothy took away from verse 15 because it's certainly what I hold on to in verse 15. Practice these things. Give yourself wholly to them because in the process, God is going to be sanctifying you by his word and making your progress evident to all. It's liberating. It's liberating. In verse 16, finally. Not only is the word the measure of our progress, but the word is the means of our perseverance. The word is the means of our perseverance. We want our churches centered upon God's word because it's God's word that is effective at accomplishing the salvation that he has promised. So verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch and persevere. Notice, it is a, first of all, close watch. Watch closely, not casually. And see also, it is a complete watch. So watch your life and your doctrine. And ultimately, it is a comforting watch. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And the minister must stand watch over his own life, whether he's a minister of music or a minister of the word, a deacon or what have you. We, we are called as Christian people to stand watch as a century over, over our own life and our own doctrine. We, we can't delegate this. We can't, we can't phone it in. We can't, we can't Twitter it. We can't tweet it. 
This is the slow, sometimes painful, but, but definite and progressive work of God by His Word to finish what He has begun in us. So Paul calls us to use means here. We're to be that diligent soldier standing on post, rifle oiled, barrel locked, watching, keeping eyes alert for the enemy's movement. It's how we guard our life and our doctrine. And notice that Paul here now puts the emphasis on life over doctrine. And Matthew Henry perhaps helps us understand why. He refers to those who teach by their doctrine. He says they must also teach by their life or else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other. And Charles Spurgeon, he tells us that there are certain men who who preach so well and live so badly that when they're in the pulpit, you wish they would never leave it. And when they're out of the pulpit, you wish they would never enter it again. (laughs) May we never know such people among us, among God's holy people. See, the minister must know more than anyone what he believes and, and he must live it, he must live it by God's grace out as thoroughly and completely as the Spirit will enable. He must, mo- he must know more than anyone that only a persevering faith is a saving faith. And that's what's meant by saving himself and his hearers. It's God who saves, but the kind of faith that saves, it's a persevering faith. A faithful, persevering minister who who continues in the spiritual life and continues in in gospel doctrine becomes a, a great blessing to his people because he always speaks and he always models a, a word of life for them. How life-giving it is to have before the people of God men who've been made by the word of God, who are persevering in that word. And as they persevere in their great train are all those who've been watching their life and hearing that doctrine and are persevering with him. And and he enters into the courts of glory and in his wake are untold numbers of those who have been saved through his ministry. What a great and glorious thing that will be. It will be to God's praise, but what a, what a great and happy and glorious thing it will be on that day when we see Christ face to face and having seen Him, we have been satisfied with His glory. And then only to look, if we can, look away from the glory to see those whom He's also brought into His glory through our ministrations. Oh, what a happy day. What a great day to look and see those who were crushed under the guilt of sin as we sang great hymns, as we sang gospel truth, were made aware of their sin. And those who by that same singing and that same spreading of the word and the gospel and that same reading of scripture and and the preaching of the sermon, those who, who heard in their guilt a word of forgiveness that Christ has borne the sins, all of them, they've been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. To, to hear and to see on that day those who heard us proclaim Christ who lifted him high and to see those whom Christ having been lifted drew unto himself. And made his very own. 
we will sing for all eternity to the praise of God's grace. We will look back at verse 16 and say, God, you did it. You preserved me and kept me by your word. Not only me, but all those you put me in front of as a praise leader and a choir member and a preacher and a scripture reader. We praise you, God. We deserve all the glory. I mean, shall the gospel minister preach a great salvation and himself live only for this life? I mean, shall, shall a gospel minister persuade others to fast while his belly is full? Shall a preacher of the gospel speak of Jesus' love for the church and neglect his wife? Shall he, shall he warn of sin and judgment and a certain hell, yet live a double life of compromise? Can a minister call men to the mission field to lay down their lives for the spreading of the word of God and the glory of Christ and never risk anything himself? Far away from us, such men. Far away from us, such hypocrisy. Remove from us, Lord, such such laziness and indifference and, and sloth and fill our churches, Lord, with the kind of men and women who, knowing that you gave all, now lay down their lives and to persevere in the faith and bring others into your glory. May our churches be full of such men. The ministry of the Word is this power that goes out not from an electric plant somewhere in Gaithersburg, Maryland. It is this power that descends from the throne of God above. And this word is to work its way into every conversation, into every proclamation, into every heart, into every hope, to every situation of distress and despair, into the heart of every broken man or woman or child, until it gives life, and until it animates God's people, until it breaks up the fallow ground and falls like a hammer and plants there a revived spirit and a bold hunger for the glory of God. We want our churches to gather and learn of God's glory, to gather and live. Everything must be driven by God's Word. For only God's Word gives life. Let's pray together. Father, we are reminded of the gospel that you preached to us, which you preached to us by human means, but was indeed your voice, your command to live the gospel on which we have taken our stand. And we confess that by this gospel we are saved. And we confess that as we wholly fir- hold firmly to the, to the word that we have heard, we will enter into your glory. We are persuaded, O oh Lord, that we have not believed in vain, but you have promised in your word, and you cannot lie, that what you have began in us, you will carry on until completion unto the day of Christ Jesus. And you have promised that all who call upon your name shall be saved. 
And you have promised that all who have this hope, O oh Lord, not only look for you, but, but when you come, we shall be like you. You promise, Lord, there is coming a time, if it can be called time, when we shall be in the fullness of your love, never to be separated. We will enjoy the fellowship of your glory, unmediated by faith. We long to look upon your face and to praise you, O Lord, with our eyes locked upon yours, to sing of your glory and to bask in your radiance. Until then, Lord, keep us by your word. Sustain us by your word. Strengthen us by your word. Lead us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Thabiti Anyabwile, which was given at our Worship God 2011 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.